6-7W, classified top secret subject is... Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Lovely people, and welcome back to another Lurgy filled Hey Kids Comics. Because, yes, Lurgy filled once it's again. Infectious through, through headphones or speakers. Yes, they're going to catch it through the headphones and the speakers, yes. Because I live in this pissant country where it does nothing but rain all the time. Let's not forget the wind. And the wind. And the cold. And the cold. I have another head cold. So I'll probably cough as and slutter, to a cold. as opposed to a foot cold, yes. My way through yet another episode. When was the last time I did this? Where I had to, I spent double the amount of time editing it because I was just coughing insanely. Or was it just one occasion? I can't remember. I'm sure I've been logy filled for more than a couple of times on this one. Uh, I have a lem sip by my side. A black currant one. Oh. So, you know. so, yeah, so I've dragged myself out of my sick bed. Actually, I've, I've not been in a sick bed. But it just shows how much I love doing this show. Oh, yeah. I do, actually. I love this hour and a half a week where me and you just get to talk about comics. Alright. Because the rest of the time we talk about comics, I'm always busy doing other things. We still talk about comics. We do, but I'm faffing around with tea and you're falling out with your brother. For an hour and a half a week I get to indulge my love of this four-colour medium and spend an hour and a half with you. Why four colours? Because that's all they used to have in the printing presses. Love it. I know what they are. (coughs) Magenta. Cyan and... And the other one. Yeah. <laughs> that no one ever remembers. It's like if somebody says there's four people in this band, you can name three of them, but never the Paul, fourth one. George. George. Ringo. And the other one. <laughs> I, I was going to miss out Ringo. <laughs> oh, no, I like Ringo. Ringo's my favourite Beatle. So, yes, I do love this. Right. Uh, I love all the people we've met through it. So all your friends now are people. All my friends are people podcasts. I've never met. <laughs> That's true. I love them all. Even the people who've never got in touch with us. Okay. And, and if you've got a cold and you're listening to this and you've never emailed us, email the show. Even if you've not any of those things, email anyway. <laughs> if you've not got a cold, email us, yes. Uh, anyway, welcome to Hey Kids Comics, I think I was saying, before mm-hmm. I was rudely interrupted by my lurgy. Your one-stop shop for comic book goodness, slightly skewed through our British sensibilities. I'm the wiser part of the equation, <laughs> Andrew Leyland, and I am joined by my younger and more naive fruit of my loins, Michael Leyland. Well done. I thought you were going to say Almost that. missed your cue. To regale you with our take on comics, the universe, and everything. But primarily I'm, comics. I'd say that's our main priority. Yes. Yeah. Uh, firstly, a couple of errors. Yes, the parts <laughs> of the show that Michael likes the most where Andrew admits he oh, made yeah. a mistake. Last week, I said the Beatles ripped off some other artists when, of course, I was talking about Oasis. Contextually, I, I think you probably would have figured that out, but I thought yeah. I'd best mention it anyway. Uh, also, I said that last issue of Marvel Team-Up was Ben Grimm and The Thing. That's patently bollocks. It was, of course, 
Marvel 2-in-1. These were obviously flubs in talking rather than scripting, but I'm sure someone will pick me up on it if I don't mention it. And before you say anything, Secret Wars 3 hasn't gone live as we record this. So I spotted those mistakes while I was proof-listening to it. Uh, see, see ya. Yes, yeah, I no. knew. Michael is pointing out. Team up was great. <laughs> the thing. That's Michael is, it was, is of taking great, team up. great pleasure in pointing out that in the notes I've got it wrong. Again. I've put Marvel team up twice instead of Marvel two in one. I'd have gotten away with it if not for you pesky kid. I just find it funny. They would never have known that I made a mistake, though. Um, if I can convince her, we may even have a special guest tonight. Wait, there's an if involved. There's always an if involved. It's never an if, it's always a no, but I'll say I will. No boom today. Boom tomorrow. Always a boom tomorrow. Okay. After the epic run of shows we did concerning Night's Quest, me and Michael, or Michael and I, <laughs> we had a bit of a conflab to look at what we wanted to do in this upcoming year and we realised there were a number of holes in the things that we'd covered didn't we? Mm -hmm. Characters we hadn't mentioned, stories we hadn't looked at that kind of thing. Heading the list was that that we had only barely covered the Hulk something that we will be remedying next week but we'd never mentioned the X-Men in general or Wolverine in specific now I know they were in Secret Wars but they really don't come out of that series smelling like roses so this week is our X-Men episode. Heartening back to the early days of the show, alas, no longer up on Podomatic due to financial issues, but we are looking into ways of reprinting these awesome examples of podcasting magnificence. Reprinting? I was just playing on the fact that we cover comics. Oh, just right, go with it. Right, okay. uh, I have picked an X-Men story, and Michael's picked an X-Men story. Just like we used to do back in the old days. The old days. The old days of the show, where the premise was you pick one and I pick one. We abandoned that pretty quickly, didn't we? <laughs> if, if we wrote music, this is where we say we've gone back to our roots. We've gone back to our roots with this album. Yes. We listened to the last one that we thought was a bit overproduced. Oh, very mainstream. And we're stripped down on this one. It's all acoustic and country. Oh, I don't know about country. May find a bit of harmonica in there. Oh, definitely harmonica. Always harmonica. I bet in the audience, I bet you out there in listener land, can't guess from which writer's run Michael's pick comes from. (laughs) Uh, Excuse me a second while I take a sip of my lovely blackcurrant lem sip. Wow, this is a rock and roll show, isn't it? (laughs) Cigarettes and alcohol? No, lem sip. We're going to stop the show once I drink some lem sip. Okay. I'm going to go mix some herbal tea. I've got blisters on my fingers! Fancy some cucumber sandwiches, boys. (laughs) Um, Confession time. They say confession's good for the soul. I'd listen to this, man. Okay. Anyway, back to confession time that has nothing to do with Superman the movie. Well. Well. Tangentially, of course. (laughs) Uh, I was never a big fan of the X-Men. Me neither. Shocking, I know. But for some reason, Marvel's Mightiest Mutants didn't speak to me on any level. I preferred single heroes to teams anyway, with a few exceptions, like the Fantastic Four and the Teen Titans. And I always perceived the X-Men to be a bunch of whiners. Another issue to take into consideration was the X-Men were never popular enough over here in the UK to sustain their own title with reprint comics in the early 80s failing after only a handful of issues. 17 issues for the weekly book reprinting Stan and Jack stuff, and the X-Men pocketbooks, which were monthly, not lasting much longer. They had more success in monthly reprint books like Rampage and Marvel Superheroes. I was, however, 
a big fan of John Byrne and to a lesser extent Chris Claremont due to their runs together on Marvel Team Up and a part on the FF. I was hearing good things about the American comics and in 1983 the UK Marvel relaunched the flagship title The Mighty World of Marvel as an all-colour monthly, very rare in the UK, with a price tag to match the rarity. Is rarity a word? I think so. Okay. With a card cover and all colour features and a whopping cost of 65 pence. Whopping. Whopping. Well, when standard UK weekly titles were about 20, 25p, that's a lot of money. Okay. Back in the day. So Um, comics are a lot more expensive than they were. (coughs) Yeah. This was an event that went a little caca. The colouring was offset at the printers and these early issues quite frankly it looked like crap however the content was considerably better part one of days of future past was the first post lee kirby x-men story i ever read pretty good start okay i think you'd agree Were you disappointed after that <laughs> pretty much yeah within four issues john byrne was gone wasn't he mm. or is it a bit more than four issues i can't remember off the top of me mighty world of marvel came out in june of 1983 with a free mighty world of marvel sticker wow mm. was it the logo uh, do you know I think it was, yeah. Do I still have that? I don't know. I've got the Daredevils, haven't I? I've still got that badge. Okay. Yes. I'm sure. In, in fact, here it is. Uh, right. Uh, just tangentially, after Mighty World of Marvel, Marvel UK launched another monthly magazine called The Daredevils, which featured Alan Moore and Alan Davis's Captain Britain strip. Uh, and Daredevil. Frank Miller's Daredevil, yeah. And the first issue came with a free badge that I am holding in my hand. I have it here. I was so dead impressed with that, and I'd be mocked mercilessly by my wife. <laughs> uh, you don't have to. No, no, it's all in the look, isn't it? June 83, how they go saying. Uh, so I went out, and I found a US issue of Uncanny X-Men, which was issue number 172, which came out in May of 83 in the United States, but with our three-month lag time, probably came out in August over here. 172 was Wolverine's marriage to Mariko. Have you read that one? No. Paul Smith had both stories were top notch, and to this day, my favourite era of the X-Men is the Chris Claremont, Paul Smith, John Romita Jr. stuff from around this time. I carried on buying the US X-Men from this point until around issue 211 or so, before dropping the boot due to the cross-pollination that was going on, something that reached saturation point in the late 1990s. Uh, since then, I've tried getting back into the X-Men on numerous occasions. I have all the essentials through volume 7. Although I've only read through volume 5. Uh, and I've enjoyed a lot of what I've read, but whenever I've tried the book post Clermont, I found it quite impenetrable at best and uh, boring at worst. Which was that the one that we read in Mighty World of Marvel, the current UK monthly book that I thought oh. was god awful? Was it the Sire Complex? I thought that was boring as hell. I enjoyed it. You'll see, there you go. So um, I dipped in and out of the 90s cartoon but found the animation and voice acting not really to my tastes after the really rather good X-Men Tim Dinny Batman Superman. I, I, did I watch X-Men Evolution? Yeah, we used to watch did it. I? We were fans of it, yeah. See, I, I'm the 90s one. Oh, yeah, we used to get up early and watch it, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. I remember. Uh, and I thought the movies were a bit of a mixed bag. What did you think of the film? The second one was the best. <laughs> That's your critical opinion. Yeah, the first one was a pretty decent pilot for a TV show. But it was a piss-poor big-budget movie, wasn't it? to be honest with you. Well, when they're doing an X-Men movie about Wolverine, it's alright. But when they're doing a Wolverine movie about Wolverine, it's utter crap. Well, there is that. Um, Brian Singer kind of robbed all the different subtext out of the characters and made them all really rather dull and one note. Yes, Hugh Jackman was pretty good as Wolverine, who seemed to have an affinity for the character similar to Christopher Reeve's affinity for Superman, but the rest... 
Ali Berry was awful. Yeah. Ian McKellen seemed to wander in from a different movie. And every single one of the main cast was far too old, weren't they? Because I was gay. He came into our school one time. Yeah, well, he was and, born not far away from it. And uh, the director says, Ian, why aren't you married? And I say, well, because I'm gay. And he fired me and I didn't play in his movie. <laughs> why did he not get his autograph? Because he didn't. We all went to this... He didn't give autographs? No, we went to, all went to the sports hall and we all sat down. He came in, he did his talk and left. That's we a shame. I thought he could have got inside my X-Men but, DVD. Uh, the teachers the next day were, were all like, we'll look at this picture of, of him in the staff. But they didn't let you take one. Oh, no. Oh, that was a bit mean. Uh, the second one was was better, largely because Hugh Jackman had a bigger slice of the pie, but the third one was pretty poor, wasn't it? Uh, wasted, uh, it wasted two excellent pieces of casting. Yeah. Kelsey Grammer, pitch perfect as the Beast, and the always wonderful Ellen Page as Kitty Pride. Why is Hugh Jackman not approached her about doing a Kitty and Wolverine movie? Because he's too busy in Australia or singing. Yeah, it's beyond my ken. Or Barbie. But we're here to praise the Marvelous Mutants, not bury them, with two most excellent examples of X-Men excitement. My pick was first published in X-Men number 143, debuting in the lovely United States on December 15th, 1980. I presume this saw print in the UK Mighty World of Marvel issue 3, which will have not only have been three years later, but also in the middle of summer. Right. I'm reading this from the really rather wonderful Marvit Pocketbooks. Marvit? Pocketbooks? Marvit. <laughs> Marvel Pocketbooks, currently being published in the UK. These are full colour, normally feature about seven or eight issues, and unlike the expensive omnibus, packs in a few extra pages so the Dark Phoenix saga isn't cut off halfway through. Uh, they fit perfectly in your back pocket, and so far, they've published a ton of these so far, haven't yeah. they? Uh, only four quid a pop, they're really good value for money. Because mm-hmm. the paper isn't that glossy crap that you can't read if there's a light on. <laughs> But it's much better than the newsprint of the comics back in the day. Michael read it from the reprint X-Men Classics from 1990. It was republished in issue 47. Uh, it was much easier to read in X-Men Classic than in the pocketbook, but the printing's very muddy yeah. compared to the British pocketbook which is a bit of a shame. Uh, the American cover was quite spooky. An ex-man or woman is being menaced by a large H.R. Geiger-esque beastie, whilst the cover copy runs Merry Christmas, X-Men. Guess what just came down the chimney? The cover is by Terry Austin on his Billy Todd. It's really quite good. For some reason, the ex-man on the cover... Oh, bugger it, it's Kitty Pratt. Has red hair, which is odd as she has brown hair normally, although women change her colour regularly, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> the X-Men Classic has a cover by Steve Light of Kitty reading to us the night before Christmas. Why the big alien beastie that dances we just mentioned behind dances her. behind her, yes. Which cover did you prefer? I like how you can't see the alien in that one. But... Um, I think the original slightly conveys Kitty's terror better that this is going to be a horror spoof issue. Whereas the X-Men Classic cover, she looks all nice and pretty. But at least she's got brown hair. And no head from the looks of it. And no head. Well, the shadows are all blending in with each other. Uh, Entitled Demon, it was written and co-plotted by Chris Clermont. Co-plotted and penciled by John Byrne and inked by Terry Austin. Letters were by Tom Orzechowski. Colours by Glynis Ween. Edited by Louise Jones. And the editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter. You remember him. Oh yeah, you wrote that crap story everyone dreamed about. Starting with a flashback to X-Men 96. Ah, footnotes. Remember that? 
we see Storm being stalked and almost defeated by the Nagari, demons from a hell dimension, the ultimate evil actually being controlled by a Khan. It tries to pull Storm down into the dark, but her inherent claustrophobia causes her to fight back, and she shatters the Khan under the demon manifestations. Professor X informs her that destroying the Khan would forever seal the gateway to the Nagari dimension, and thus she leaves. Professor X was wrong. In the present day, well, 1980 anyway, the Nagari awakens and, having awakened, feeds on Ellie and Douglas Moore, two newlyweds out looking for a Christmas tree, and having fed, it hunts. Over at X-Mansion, it's now Christmas Eve, and Kitty Pride is being instructed by Professor X in how to set the ignition sequence for the X-Jet, known as Blackbird. That will come in useful later. The Angel interrupts and informs Professor X that the car has arrived. All the X-Men are apparently heading out for the night. Storm, Nightcrawler and Colossus are going with Professor X, Wolverine and his lady friend Mariko have a date, and the Angel is meeting up with his lady friend Candy Southern. The tone is light and jovial until Nightcrawler kisses Mariko under the mistletoe and Wolverine nearly guts him. (laughs) Professor X calms him down and Wolverine apologises before they all leave for the night, leaving Kitty all alone. How old is Kitty Pride in this story? Thirteen? Yeah. And they're leaving her all on her own? Yep. I mean, maybe Kitty Pride's like you. Fair she's enough. relatively intelligent for her aid. Well, until you started setting fire to the house. I didn't. After trying to phone home and finding no one in, Kitty decides to do some exercise in the danger room instead of vegging out with ice cream and watching It's a Wonderful Life, but is interrupted by the alarm. Something is in the attic. Kitty investigates and finds not only Storm's attic apartment and all her flowers trashed, but a Nagari. It pursues Kitty through the mansion, leaving devastation in its wake. Kitty tries phasing through roofs, walls and stairwells, but to no avail. The Nagari keeps on coming. Kitty phases through the floor suddenly, dropping into the storage closet under the stairs, hoping the sudden loss of her scent will distract the creature. It does, and Kitty reaches for the phone outside the storage closet to call in the X-Men. As she reaches the receiver, the Nagari strikes. Its claws reach out and rip through Kitty, who phases at the last moment, causing the claws to pass through her, albeit not harmlessly. The last-minute phase leaves her left arm numb. Realising the creature is as smart as it is strong, Kitty heads to the danger room, hoping she can program some dangerous activity that may stun or hopefully hurt the creature. However, again, the Nagari anticipates this, attacking not the danger room, but the control booth housing Kitty. She faces through the booth to the danger room below, and the creature follows. The danger room activates, bombarding Kitty and the Nagari with obstacles, and this startles the creature. It rips up the floor, cutting off the room's safeguards, and the barrage from the room's computer testing sequences hit the creature full force. Kitty's tiring, but realising the creature seems vulnerable to fire, she leads it to the hangar bay, where she jumps in the blackbird and keys up the ignition sequence that she was learning at the beginning of the story. I told you it would come in useful. Waiting until just the right moment, Kitty hits the ignition. 20,000 kilograms of thrust shoots forth from both jet engines, destroying the danger room and hurling the blackbird forth. Kitty kills the engines and activates all the fire sprinklers. The creature has to be dead. She phases out of the cockpit and crosses the hangar bay to where the beastie fell. It must be dead. A Nagari claw reaches for Kitty, who has time for one short scream. It's midnight when Professor X and the rest arrive back. He senses something about the house and the asthma of evil. Creeping slowly in, they find Kitty in the living room watching some TV. She's surprised to see her mum and dad with them, a Christmas surprise from Xavier. Storm returns from upstairs and mentions the mess to Kitty, and Kitty tells her the tale. Kitty survived her own rite of passage this evening, and Storm is very proud, albeit a little confused. What? Was that not one of my more dramatic readings? Uh, well...
I've got a cold, dude. I don't understand the words. <laughs> Not well. Just going to keep pointing that out. Oh, and you do. <laughs> I gave him a look, though. I gave him what Paddington would call a hard stir. Shame when it's an audio medium that they can't see my hard stirs. You should take a photo of it and put it on the website. Yes, take a photo of it and put it on the website. (laughs) Uh, Page one. There's no better way of getting someone hooked than having one of the heroes get speared on the first page. Than having them literally get hooked. Yes, very good. Ba-boom. We'll be here all week. Uh, I really like that. Although this intro has its roots in a previous issue, there's no need to have read that previous issue to understand what's going on. The first four pages of this play like a pre-credit sequence for a movie or a TV show without being slavish to that form and without seeming like they would much rather be a TV show by having camera flows of that as well but see any current issue of any comic published by anyone exhibit A my lord any of them they all want to be TV do you know what really irks me comics that say they are season one or comics that have director's cuts but surely someone's directing a comic. No, they're not. But they're writing a comic. They're drawing a comic. They're colouring and lettering a comic. They're, they're editing a comic. They are not. Oh, what? They they direct the traffic, do they? They put the comics in the buzzes and say, right, you're going to that one, and you're going. No, no, no. Right, okay, you're directing a story, which means you're plotting out a story. It's not directing. You're not winning this argument. The comics, damn it! Write them as I, I, such. I do know what you mean when they go panel, credit, panel, credit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after the splash page, we get uh, a two-page spread of Storm fighting the Gary, in which he's almost defeated. Fights back, overcomes the odds, and emerges victorious in, I'll repeat that, two pages. That's two an entire issue. pages. Right? Oh, Exhibit B, my lord. <laughs> see any issue of any current comic to see how this would be padded out beyond all reading. Or just read any Bendis or Johns comic. Yes. Um, but you like Bendis and Johns. I'm the grumpy old fart. Um, when they do so, <laughs> things, yeah. I don't like everything they've done. Good. That's what I like to hear. Uh, I've no idea if this sequence did appear in X-Men 96, but it really doesn't matter for the story at hand, does it? Mm. The first sequence seems... Like a Lovecraft homage. It does a bit. That's a very good point, yeah. And not only the Nagari described as Elder Gods, but they were also left believed to be dead. The Elder Gods were a branch or faction of Lovecraft's gods, and Cthulhu, even though he was a great old one, not an Elder God, was left sleeping in a death-like slate in his home. Wow, you just just brought a, a literary knowledge to this show. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Well done. Thank you. Hmm. I'm stunned. See, I am quite good. <laughs> you're worth you're worth the salary this week. Salary? Yes. I'm being paid that <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, page three. I love the art on this page. The texture of the clothes looks very real. Uh, actually, it's page four. And, no, it is page three. Yeah, I'm messing up. Because I'm, I'm looking through the classic comic now instead of having to open the pocket boot. Um, the texture of the clothes looks very real. And you can almost feel the cold as you inhale. Although that could be just because it's bloody freezing. Uh, and then there's the tragedy of the death. In the space of a few short panels, the art and the dialogue tell you enough about these characters, including, importantly, their names, for you to feel a twinge of sadness when they die. Um, I think it was Harlan Ellison 
who said that by the simple act of giving a character a name, a writer can evoke sympathy from the reader. The act of having a name implies a backstory. If it's just cop one and thug two, then you just don't care. See exhibit three. See exhibit three. No, I don't have a, a direct exhibit for. There's any How number of action movies. Any number of any comic being published today. Well, see, that's where, where well, that, but there's Die Hard scores over other action movies. Every one of the terrorists in Die Hard are given a name, aren't they? Yeah. So you know the names of all the people that John McClane kills. I mean, you don't necessarily feel sympathy for them because they're scum. Yeah. But just by having a name, that associates a backstory with them. Mm. And it's really quite good. And, and like then current video games. See them, they're all bad guys. Thug 3. Uh, and page 3, panel 7 is great. I like the big moon. But do you know that the alien looks a lot like the Xeno thingy from Alien? Which is also something I'll bring up later. Really? Yeah. You, you really think that this this was an accidental homage to Alien? Oh, was it? No, oh, it really wasn't. <laughs> I, I, I was reading the issues. Wait, that, that, yeah. wait, wait. Uh, well, I'll I, see what you're doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll get into that a bit more later. On page four, the story proper begins. Proper. After the, the, the pre-credits sequence. He says, compare it to a TV show after just slagging comics off for being TV show. Uh, with an almost placid splash page of Professor X teaching Kitty how to use the Blackbird. But, but the story title is depicted as a logo with the Nagari creature draped over it like snow over a tree. Does that also not fit into the narrative as well? Yes. Is it not also there watching them? I didn't get that, no. Oh, I, I got that that was symbolic. Because my thinking was, if it was there watching them... Why did he not attack them all now? Because it's on his own and he knows they're all stronger than him, so he's waiting. It's possible, I suppose. I didn't get that, because I don't think that's substantiated by any of the, the panels further on. And there is also the thing that Kitty's on her own from two pages hence. Why did he not just attack her then? Why did he wait? But it's a good point. I liked your interpretation of it. Another sip of lem sip is needed. Ah, to lubricate my throat. We should make a no drinking and speaking rule on this podcast. We should, yes. The next three pages are all Clermont has this issue to introduce the other X-Men for newer readers. And I think he does it really well. I think he does it wonderfully. Clermont gets a lot of stick from people for no other reason than he has writer's ticks. You slagged him off just last week, didn't you? I, think. Yeah, I, I don't like his style of writing. Well, every writer... Hell, every creative person has ticks. Mm. The trick is how long you can keep your readers slash listeners slash viewers from noticing them. Um, Clermont, more than anyone else, I reckon, deserves boatloads of credit for making comics not only cool to read. And remember, there was nothing cooler than reading X-Men comics for a while. Okay. But also palatable for an older audience. Kids could still read X-Men and get a lot out of it. But Clermont never wrote down to his audience, yes, this stuff's dense, but it's dense in a good way. The caption boxes aren't just telling you what's in the art, they're telling you more story. The thing that would actually lead to the dissolution of the Clermont Byrne partnership in yeah. just a couple of issues. In this, this is the last issue for Clermont Byrne and Austin, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and these pages encapsulate Clermont at his very best. We see Wolverine snap. Nightcrawler's whimsy, the relationship between Colossus and Kitty, Colossus's powers, Nightcrawler's powers, Professor X's powers and concern for his charges, where Cyclops is and what he's up to, and the Angel's powers, and it never feels like, this is Wolverine and this is what he can do, and this is Nightcrawler and this hey is what guys, he can do. guys, let's have a roll call! Yeah, like in Secret Wars, let's all stand around while somebody introduces us. Yeah. That doesn't happen here. No. It's all introduced contextually within the story, but at the same time, he shows you what everyone can do. This is how you handle exposition. You know what all these people can do in three short pages. It never 
feels tedious to read. Of course, he doesn't explain where Nightcrawler's going. Mm. But we don't need to know everything, do we? Bamfing around. Yeah, I presume he's just bamfing around. Well, yeah. you, you say that Claremont's good with his storytelling and all that, but let's face it, we both thought X-Men Forever was crap. X-Men Forever wasn't his finest hour, no. No. Uh, page six, panel three. I don't think Kitty should really do that. Doesn't she know that Colossus is going to forget her in a few years' time <laughs> and lose her face? I've forgotten what she looks like! Oh, but hello, Mrs. Plot Device. <laughs> hello, Mrs. Plot Device, who I love more than life itself! Oh, she's dead, never mind. <laughs> oh, what not? Oh, okay, I'm going back home. Okay. Uh, I also didn't know that Kitty was Jewish. Yes, that was a good point. Well, a lot of comics stay away from religion and politics. from applying religious well. affi- 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 affiliation. God, I cannot talk tonight to the characters. Yeah, for the reason that they don't want to open up that kind of worms. I think there's only Matt Murdock's a Catholic. Yeah, Kitty Pryde's Jewish. Ben Grimm, I think, has been we've been told is Jewish, okay. but we don't know any of the others. No, do we? There's an argument to be said that we don't need to know. Not really. What religion they are. I don't need to know what Peter Parker is. Although Peter Parker certainly carries enough Catholic guilt around with him, doesn't he? So, <laughs> like Hal Jordan. Yeah, so uh, certainly. It wouldn't be a surprise to learn that Peter Parker was a Catholic. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, we don't need to know it. No. Uh, speaking of art and writing, there's no indication in the art on page 8 that Byrne intended Kitty to pull something while exercising. Uh, it's a funny bit, though. And the description of the joy Kitty gets in using her powers at the top of this page is really well handled and a lovely little touch. The X-Men enjoy using their powers. Wow, who knew? Huh? Who knew that it could be fun to be a mutant? Maybe. Wow. Because like, if you look at the art where she's doing the exercise, she goes, ow, felt something twinge. There's nothing yeah. there to signify that that's what he drew. Maybe, maybe those lines on her leg. Are <coughs> yeah, the possibly she's twirling her foot and before she's pulled something. But again, the... The disconnect between the art and the writing is what would lead them to creatively divorce. Oh, what did happen? Um, John Byrne has said on his website that he just got a bit fed up of Chris writing something that was different to what he drew. And he said the final straw... So he drew it before they wrote it? Yeah, they plotted it together. Right. They plotted it together, and then... He goes away and draws it, and then Chris Clermont would write it. Chris Clermont would add the dialogue. So like what they did with Stan and Jack. Yeah, and the captions and such. And he said the final straw for him was... I'm seeing if it's in here. Yes, here it is. It's in this pocket book. X-Men 140, the first page. John Burner said, he, if you remember this issue, lovely listeners, it opens with a, a splash page of Colossus ripping a tree trunk up with an iron chain and um, Berner said he clearly drew that that Colossus is having no trouble whatsoever yeah. there's no exertion going on he's not struggling he's doing it really easily and Clermont wrote by Lenin's beard my heart will burst and my steel body will crack but I will pull you free and Byrne was like that's not what we agreed when I drew the issue yeah. and that was just one more an example of he was never going to have the final say as long as Clermont was writing it after he'd done the art. Uh. Chris could basically write whatever the hell he wanted over the top of his artwork. Uh. And there was nothing he could do about it. So he left to be his own writer. Could editorial not do something about that? Well, see, it's one of those things that arguably was Clermont improving it. Well, Clermont, Burn and Austin. He improve it when the, the, the 
text is different to the art. I know, but did that art being different though affect the story? I don't know. And what would happen to Kitty if she stopped phasing through the middle of an object? That would hurt. Would her, would her legs fall off or something? No, she'd just be trapped in the middle of that object. That was in an episode of Star Trek. Was it? Yeah, somebody had fallen right. through the deck. Right when the, the ship became intangible for some reason and they'd fallen through the deck and it just they solidify within the deck so they become part of the deck yeah mm. and the legs were underneath and the bodies up front and they kind of got a deck in them <laughs> well they did Battlestar Galactica as well when they jump into a mountain yes yeah they didn't plan the jump properly did they mm. and one of the ships well, appeared inside of a mountain, mountain yeah um and wouldn't she also have to obey gravity? I mean, surely if she phases through the <coughs> roof and land on the floor below, she'd, she'd have to do some damage. Well, he's explaining in the thought bubbles. Yeah, I then read in the... Oh, did you get to the bit later on that explains that she's, she can act, she's so powerful she can manipulate her molecules. Yeah. Similar to the molecule map in the last couple of issues of Secret oh, World. Yeah. Page 10, panel 4, kind of blows it. There's two extraneous word balloons on this panel that don't look like Artitowski's work. One of them is particularly egregious, and the other is completely superfluous. Superfluous. God, it's not going well tonight. On the previous page we saw, and we're told that Kitty can walk on her molecules. And here we have another thought bubble telling us exactly the same thing. Um, I don't want to point fingers, but this reeks of editorial... Or yeah. big Jim Shooter himself saying, the reader won't know what she's doing here, make it obvious. When he's already set up that she can do this just a page or two before, in the things, it says she's sliding through when she falls out of the control booth. Yeah. It sets it up. So, do you not think those two bubbles look a bit... Well... Not Ozzy... Oz, oh, I can't even say the guy's name now. Ozzy It's not going well tonight, is it? Um, page 11 has some fantastic shots of Kitty using her superpowers. Panel 2 has her top half disappearing through a wall, uh, and panel 3 runs straight across the page showing her legging it through the bedrooms. Yeah, I like that. It's great, isn't it? Well, it's mid-wall, and the Nagari's just tearing up the stuff behind her. It's really good. It was one of those burn things where he'd make him stand on panels. Or yeah, whatever. Burn and Austin at their very best, though. Yeah, there is an argument to be made, perhaps you're right, that if he'd drawn that as if she was running along the bottom of the panel... Mm. With the walls blocking it, that would have been just as cool. Uh, the thought balloons are also used to great effect here, forwarding both character and story. Kitty addresses that she can't call the police as Nagari will just tear them apart when they arrive. And she's also physically outmatched, so she'll have to outthink it and hope she's smarter than it is. All of this shows us that thought bubbles can be a great storytelling device, as this does address certain plot points. Because while you're reading this, you think, why didn't she just call for help? Yeah. While it's not slowing why the story down. Why did she get down. a mobile phone? Well, this was before mobile phones, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, it all feels pretty organic to me, and not at all stilted. I, I really dug it. Page 12, though, has another art writing inconsistency. The thought bubbles say that Kitty's dropped through another floor to another closet near the phone, but the art and the colour... Yeah. don't substantiate this this is a lovely little point and one that does date the story ever so slightly with Kitty having to reach a phone and open the X-Men will hear the car phone mobile phones have really killed a lot of drama haven't they because yeah. everyone's now like why have you not got a mobile phone and you've got to do something like show that there's no signal or no battery or, no battery or, or gee maybe the main character doesn't own one <laughs> yeah or something like oh they've left it in the car is another favourite isn't yeah. it so they don't have it with them uh, page 15 and 17 again visually 
and story wise are both awesome the visuals show off the attacks whilst the thought balloons have Kitty talk about even though she can avoid the solid danger room's attacks just as vulnerable as the Nagara to gas and other insidious methods we also learn that she's tiring while the creature seems to keep relentlessly after her solid stuff it's like the Terminator yeah. I thought in many ways. It will not stop. It absolutely will not stop. I also love Kitty's determination here. If she dies, there's no one to warn the X-Men, and when they come home, they'll be slaughtered. Heroic fiction, remember that. Mm. Page 18, reference to Alien. Well, yeah. Uh, I thought it was Alien. Did you know when... Then, that, well, it's a pity I don't have a king-size flamethrower handy. They use them to fight the monster in that movie. <laughs> This is an old writer's trick called hanging a lantern on it, I think. Which basically means that you as a writer point out something to the audience so the audience will give you a pass on something. Yeah. In this case, Claremont is clearly saying to the reader, OK, I know I'm ripping off Alien. You know I'm ripping off Alien. Let's just go with it. And I think because he acknowledges it as yeah. a reader, you're more likely to go, oh, well, at least he's honest and let it ride. It, it all just seems like Alien, really. Well, it is. It's just one big take-off of Alien. Is it not just to take off the films of the time, though? No, it's, I think it's very specifically Alien. Well, you just said it was like Terminator as well. Yeah, there's a bit of Terminator. Yeah, well, Terminator was five years hence oh, right. from this story, remember. Um, well, it's not like Chris Clermont's the only person to ever do Base Under Siege, is he? Mm. I mean, there's at least one Base Under Siege story in every Doctor Who season. They always do it because it's cheap to do Base Under Siege. You're locked in one specific location with a monster after you. Yeah. You don't have to go out on location. You can light your set and leave it. I mean, there's no real excuse in a comic book. It's harder to make it good, though. Yeah, but that's why when they are good, they're really good. Right. When they really work, when they're really claustrophobic and tense, and your characters are trapped somewhere that they can't get out of, yeah. and something's following them. When they're good, they're really very well good. Really very well good. <laughs> and that's why Alien works. She's on a spaceship in the middle of nowhere. Where can she run to? Yeah. She can't. So it's really good. And I'm saying really good quite a lot. Um, this does beg a question that I'm thinking you may be able to answer. All right. Alien was an 18 certificate over here, although mm-hmm. apparently it's been reclassified as a 15 by the BBFC for DVD release. It was an R in America, right. which my understanding is restricted, which is 17 and above, isn't it? Yeah. How does Kitty know what Alien is then? When did she see it? She's 13 in this story. Um... Didn't you used to sneak in cinemas? I didn't sneak in, I just paid and walked in. Well. Because <laughs> I, 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 well, I was thinking about this. I got in to see Aliens, which was in 18, in mm. 1986, when I was 14. So I suppose it's plausible Kitty went and saw this with a couple of mates yeah. before she ended up at X Mansion. Because in terms of X-Men continuity, she's only been an X-Men for three or four issues at this point, hasn't she? So about a week. Middle of the Dark Phoenix saga, Kitty shows up. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's entirely possible that she did it beforehand. But I just thought that was that was worth pointing out. And there's my little stupid note that's been uh, proved null and void many times. Why has it been... Why do you think it's proved null and void? Because I'm essentially saying, I thought this bit was a bit like Alien. <laughs> well, it is! <laughs> <laughs> uh, page 19... 
is almost unbearably tense. You can almost hear a John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith score swelling in the background as Kitty bides her time before the Nagari is in with rage at the Blackbird's jet engines. The use of the panels getting bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller is particularly striking at the top of the page. And again, the Thought Balloon addresses a story issue, namely, wasn't it lucky that the Nagari approached it from just the correct angle to get fried? Mm. Not if the Blackbird's on a revolving table. See, that's not in the art. No. But it is something that's mentioned in the writer, which I thought was quite cool. Uh, in the tradition of all Beastie on the Loose horror movies, there's a wonderful fake out at the bottom of page 20. Just a one where last... Yeah, uh, where it reaches out of the fire at her and she screams! I remember it's like the end of the Carrie. Them. you never seen Carrie? No. You should watch Carrie. It's very, very good. Overall, I thought this was a marvellous issue. Yes, it's familiar, as you've pointed out. Yeah. It's a bit like Alien... In the way that the remake of Psycho is a bit like Psycho. But so it's... utter crap. No, it's not. It's really no, good. I mean, the remake of Psycho is utter crap. Yeah, it's a very dense read. Clermont packing each panel out with a story beat or a character piece or even just a little aside. But he does it in such a way. It doesn't feel expositional or superfluous. For the most part, the text complements the art rather than treading all over it or saying something completely different to the pictures with the few exceptions that we've pointed out. Of course, the art's magnificent. Clermont, Byrne and Austin would all go into bigger and better things individually and occasionally get the band back together. But with this, Byrne and Austin's last issue, they prove why they were a creative team that deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Lee Kirby, Lee Ditko, O'Neill Adams, Engelhart Rogers, also with Terry Austin, and Goodwin and Williamson. Do you add anybody to that? Jeff Johns and Ivan Rice, possibly? Jeff Johns and Jim Lee? Jeff Loeb and Tim Sales? Um, any of those that you'd go with Morrison and Quitley I'd even let you have that one Logan McGuinness Logan McGuinness yeah okay produce these are your you think they're up there with Lee Ditko and well, O'Neill and Adams not on a creative level but on a when they work together yeah. it's better than the sum of their parts yeah is what you're saying Paul McCartney and John Lennon were fine on their own but when they were together but when they were together they were yeah. gold yeah, fair enough. Okay. Uh, this team created nearly three years' worth of X-Men stories together, issues that are still being cannibalised by Marvel today. Under their watch, the X-Men would undergo the Dark Phoenix saga, the days of future past, see the introduction of Alpha Flight, and see Wolverine growing to be one of the most popular characters in X history. Hell, comic books in general. Yeah. Burned, fed up with Clermont writing things different to what he plotted and drew, quit to take over the Fantastic Four and ultimately rebooted Superman the first time, you know, when it was raw to do something like that. Austin left with him and continued to have an excellent career proving there is no artist that cannot be made to look brilliant under his inks. I'd love to see him ink some Jack Kirby. Yeah. Just to see what it looks like. Clermont... better. Well, see, I'm not as down on Kirby. Even the women would look like women. I think his women look like women. They just tend to all, all look, look the same. Similar. Anyway, Clermont, of course, stayed on the book for nearly 17 years, all told. Giving oh, us Jim Lee. Giving us Jim Lee, yeah. Only leaving when editor Bob Harris sided with Jim Lee over the story direction. Clermont, it's fair to say, changed the way American comics were done. He's got detractors, one of which is sat to my left, but under his pen, the X-Men became the force to be reckoned with they are today, with complex interwoven stories, sometimes plotted out years in advance, but without him, there probably wouldn't be the multi-issue story arcs we have today. What did you think of it, Michael? Well, I, I like this issue. It's a very it's, good issue. It's one of my good issues, and I do like Kiss Pride. See Astonishing X-Men. Mm. But, 
<coughs> my thing with it is what I have with all Claremont stories is that there's too much text in it, and to me, it feels a bit stiff. Really? Yeah. See, I I was reading this, and I'll be honest. I think of everything we've covered over the year plus we've now been doing this show. This single issue took me longer to synopsize yeah. than anything else. Even though my synopsis was no longer than any of the others I've ever written. It's that dense. It's so dense. To, but I loved it. Well, it's the thing where because of the storytelling, you can read it without any yeah text in it. But mm. I, I think the text kind of slows the pacing down and it makes it feel a bit more stiff. See, I, didn't, I don't agree with that, because I... Every little bit of it is filled with a character beat, or it's putting the plot forward in some way. Yeah. There's, I don't think there's a wasted balloon in it. I don't think he's been verbose for the sake of being verbose. Well, there is a couple of wasted balloons you pointed out before. There's a couple of extraneous ones that don't need to be there, yes, yeah. but in terms of his writing... I don't think there's anything... He's never just telling you what's happening in the panel, which he's a lot of writers did. He's giving you further insights. He's telling you why the character's doing this. Mm. I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, quick break while we plug somebody's podcast. I think we're doing a Luke Giaconetti plug this week for Earth oh, Defence okay. Directorate. I think that's what we're plugging this week. Did you say that right? I think so. I don't know. I don't think I'm saying anything tonight. I will be right back. Would you like a lunch ship? <laughs> Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey you! Yes you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well evidently you do because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do! Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera, but also lesser-known monsters, like Yappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything, from movies, to comic books, to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we're back. Very well done. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, your choice, you Michael. For my issue, I've chosen New X-Men 127. I'll let that sink in for a moment, because I know what you're thinking. 
And to be honest, you're wrong. We're not wrong. Well, no, this is a Grant Morrison <laughs> issue, but that's not why I chose it. Really? Mm. Okay. Well, there's one reason why this is the only run on X-Men I've actually read. Right. There's not many stuff out of Astonishing X-Men, which is the other run on X-Men that I've read and enjoyed. Did you not like Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men? No, I did. It's just there wasn't really any single issues. No, it is one long narrative. Yeah. Fair enough. And, um... I, I chose this issue because of Frank Quitley's art. Fair enough. Right? Now, Quitley may not be liked by most. Hell, he may not be liked at all due to his style or inability to draw women, but neither could Kirby and look at his popularity. Not saying a word yet. But his main strength is in his storytelling, in my opinion. My humble, humble opinion. And it's very humble. humble. Yeah. Um, even if I think his newer stuff is a lot better than his older stuff. Do you? Yeah. Is this, would this come from his older stuff category? This is his older stuff category, yeah. Right. And your argument is that this issue that we read today mm-hmm. is not part of an overall narrative. It is. It is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go on. Uh, there was two ways I could have gone with this. There was a single issue later on. Yes. Which stood on its own completely with the new character they introduced called Zorn, I think. Zorn. But, yeah, it, it was a really with good... With an X. With an X, yeah. <laughs> But um, <coughs> it was a really good single issue story, which done its own and was really, really good actually with decent art. But, who drew it? Um, I don't know actually. Mm. I, I never heard of him. Uh-oh. Like most people who did work on New X Men, because the art on that was hit and miss. Right. It, it was all right when Jimenez or Ethan Van Skeever came on board. Maybe even quickly at times, but other than that, it wasn't all that good art wise. Right. Okay. Um, but I chose this one because of the storytelling when there's no speech in it. Right. Okay, fair I, enough. I, well, honest, given that it's... I really like this issue. All right, fair enough. Uh, given that it does plop down smack dab in the middle of one of Grant's storylines, do you want to contextualise it for us? All right, then. Just to catch up, <coughs> Genosha was completely wiped out by a rogue sentinel that was being controlled by a super psychic Cassandra Nova. Right? Right. She then made an assault on Xavier Institute to gain control of Cerebra, but was killed by what appears to the X-Men as a new Charles, as in his more edgy and darker and... Of course. Oh, yeah. And he was leather. As he threatens to kill himself when she hides in his head, and then killed Cassandra himself. It was soon revealed, though, that Cassandra had manifested herself into the mind of Charles Xavier and decided to kick Charles out of his body and into her dead body. Cassandra... (laughs) Oh, dear God. ...then attacked Beast and mentally tortures him, also forcing him to savagely beat a favourite student of his before buggering off to the Shi'ar to do some buggery up in space. Whilst Hank recovers, however, he gains clues, then finds Cassandra's dead body and realises that Xavier's mind is trapped in her body. Um, The cover to this issue depicts Cassandra's floating head, covered in shadow as she smiles. Charles is also floating on her head and looks as though he's burning. So, what do you have to say about the cover? Looking at it purely from the standpoint of an individual issue, I have not read the rest of Grant Morrison's X-Men run. You should. This is the only issue of Grant Morrison's X-Men run I have read. I thought you read the first three. Have I? I don't remember. But if I have, I don't remember reading I thought you remember, because that's all you have to read to understand this. Right, I have obviously not. Uh, The cover, as it stands, has no context to it, so I'm a little confused. It seems to depict an emaciated old guy with a green tattoo on his head of an emaciated old guy 
It's by Frank Quitley, an artist that seems to have developed an enormous fan following for, as far as I can see, rather lacklustre art. Now, as usual, this is just my opinion and probably not to be taken too seriously, but I've never really got the Frank Quitley love. His men always look a bit doughy, and his women not even the slightest bit attractive, and everyone he draws seems to have huge Bruce Forsyth chins. Uh, I showed your mum the cover to the new X-Men 116, the White Queen cover, from a couple of issues back, and um, she said he draws women as they don't want to look, with love handles and no figure. His men all look like they're doing blue steel. (laughs) He also seems to be one of those artists that feels he's too big to draw the character on model. I don't object to this too much if the characters are still recognisable. I've not read any of this collection, but flicking through it to get some feel for it, Wolverine and and Cyclops, sorry, don't look anything like they did in the burn issue we just covered. Uh, Anyway, back to this cover. We're reading this in the new X-Men Ultimate Collection Volume 1 trade, so the cover is presented without any copy and without context. If I hadn't looked this up show up on the internet, I wouldn't have known that this was the Nuff Said Month an editorially yeah. mandated stunt in which every Marvel comic well, that month really had no dialogue. Graphic well, I suppose, no, within a collection, there's no need to do that, I suppose. But the actual cover was even worse than this one. The cover copy was appallingly bad, making the art look really closed in and cramped. Um, I'm not saying it's good without the copy, but at least it's a bit clearer what it is. Yeah. There were, there were some covers that weren't great, most of the early stuff, but there were decent covers. Magneto's Return was a decent cover. Well, is, is, so you're saying that's Charles and Xavier on the cover of this issue? No, that's the green bit's Charles. So who's the old dude? Cassandra Nova. So that's a woman? Yep. Moving swiftly on. You'll find out why they look similar. Right. Very similar. Oh, is that the baby? Yeah. Is that his twin? It's found out that the twins, yeah. Right, I see. Well, it's found out later than not, but we'll get on to that later. All right, fair enough. Right, the, uh, credited are storytellers Morrison and Quitley. Letter uh, Richard Starkins, Hi-Fi Design Coloured, and Pete Franco and Mark Powers edited. Deep beneath the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, the two ex-psychics, Jean Grey and Emma Frost, prepare themselves before entering a room that seals behind them. Scott and Logan wait outside in silence. Inside the room is a computer, some machinery, and Cassandra Nova's dead body. Emma takes a quick drink, and then they both enter her mind. They walk down some stairs before coming across a dead end, and ahead of them is water, pink water but water nonetheless, with a large castle-like building in the centre, and to the side is a door in the shape of Cassandra's face. Jean attempts to open the door, but it pulls quite a creepy face, and she backs away. Jean heads for the castle whilst Emma fights the door. Jean uses some rubble to make herself a path, but is attacked by Cassandra's faces that surround the castle and shoot laser eye beams at her. And Jean then falls into the water, but swims to shore. Why is she going to do that in the first place? I don't know. Maybe she wants to keep her dry. <laughs> Possibly. She enters the castle and walks up some stairs, where she finds Charles with a very large head, chained down and surrounded by children's drawings, mannequins, and a fetus in a jar. Buy yours today in any good toy shop. <laughs> Jean picks up a snow globe and looks at the marriage couple inside, probably Charles' parents, surrounded by giant sperm. Yes. Giant sperm. She watches as an egg is fertilised and two babies are conceived. After, uh, after a while, baby B decides to punch baby A before strangling it. Baby A responds to this by shining light out of its mouth and eyes, which sends the per- mother, who is walking upstairs, downstairs. Jean throws the snow globe to the side and speaks to Charles. Jean finds Emma covered in goo and makes the goo spell out, Hello Emma, thanks for the help. 
The two walk to Charles, who's now on the beach. In the real world, Scott and Logan see that silent sign has turned off, and Jean walks out saying that Charles tried to kill his twin sister whilst he was still in the womb, and they have to talk. Uh, pages two to three in this. Um, the problem with no dialogue issues is that there's no explanation of who the characters are. Um, like I said at the top of the show, not the biggest X-Men fan in the world. But even with that caveat, I barely recognise Wolverine and Cyclops. And even only here, because Wolverine's short and hurry and Cyclops has his specs on. Well, I presume, still knew who they were. I still know who they were, yes. I presume the redhead is Jean Grey. Yes. So she's alive again. Well, not for long. So she's dead again. Yeah. There's a bit on the end where she dies, which splits off into two realities. One where the X-Men will fail and the Beast will be a bad guy and everything dies. So after that, she then, as Phoenix, makes Scott and Emma make out on Jean's grave and then they do good things. Uh, uh, I presume the blonde is the White Queen. Mm. Both the blonde and the redhead have exactly the same face, along with the pointy chin, spud nose, pursed lips, like a 12 year old girl pouting. And the White Queen looks very uncomfortable in that costume. Well, I think that costume's a bit silly. Though, showing it to friends at school think differently. Oh, whoa, look at her, you can see her boobs, that's so hot. <laughs> yeah, isn't that everything that's wrong with it, though? Yeah. Um, page 3, panel 2 and 3. Hmm. Here we see a subtle but major clue as to what's going to happen to Jean and Scott's race relationship in marriage. Oh, they're married as well? Yeah. You see, he grabs onto her arm and she brushes him off and tells him to shush. Yes. Now, um, before Morrison jumped onto the book, Scott <coughs> was taken over by some demon thing and still whines about it like he was <laughs> parallax and pushes himself <laughs> away from Jean, who in return does the same to him. This leads to Scott going to sex therapist Emma Frost for help in the form of her dressing up as Phoenix and uh, sessions of psychic sex just before Jean finds out. And and you don't see the inherent wrongness of what you just said? Cyclops goes to see a psychic sex therapist. She she just says, I said that as a joke, but he goes to talk to her and after all she says, well I'm a sex therapist Scott, should I uh, show you? Oh, dear God. Uh, page five. The redhead, who may or may not be Jean Grey, mind links with the really old guy on the table, who I believe may be <laughs> Professor X, but if it is, my God, he's aged since I last read an X-Men comic. So apparently it's not Professor X. No, it's a woman. Because I read this before you did your notes. Yeah. Right, so that's a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're given a full-page spread of entering of Jean entering his mind. It's really quite good to be honest what, with you what? uh, it's very surrealistic as she experiences all the emotions and experiences of the person whose mind she's sure in and I really love how the concentric circles spiral downwards as she probes deeper hmm. god I just said something nice about Frank Whitley <laughs> yeah look at the blue moon yes um, page 5 is a <coughs> work showing Jean enter Cassandra's head the top of the page shows the outline of her head whilst the main body of the image is Jean twirling around in an Escher-esque spiral Emma is not shown in this but apparently getting into someone's mind means going through the nostrils <laughs> well you know I've never entered somebody's mind so, so wouldn't I, I wouldn't know. Uh, page six, Child's Roll into the Dark Tower came. That's Dark Tower. It's also a poem by Browning. Oh, right. But yes, it is the, the Dark so, Tower. So the yeah. Dark Tower is based on a poem? I don't think it's based on, I think he's got a few of his ideas from that, yeah. Right. 
page seven, Emma shows up and she and Jean communicate via smiley faces and funny images. Yes. It isn't that cheating and getting around it a bit. Yes. Well, he cheats at the end as well, doesn't he? Mm. And the Cassandra does a creeper, but also I notice that the story goes by more and more appear. See, more and more blocks being put up in his mind, I presume. Mm. I obviously have no idea who that was, and I just interpreted that as Charles putting up barriers in his head because I assumed that that was Charles Xavier whose mind they were they were entering. Well, yeah, they are. I was wrong, but right. No, they are. So it's not Xavier's body. Nope. But it's Xavier's mind. Yep. The probing someone's body to get into his mind. There's a lot of probing and entering going on in this story. Uh, page eight, the White Queen fights through Xavier's defences in the corners of his mind. And her clothes are all removed. Girl surprise. Uh, for one panel, the last one on the page, quickly draws somebody who looks like a real woman. Mm-hmm. I was shocked. Naked, the White Queen has a figure and a small belly. And then on page 12, panel 12, she suddenly looks like a 12-year-old girl again. Her legs are about 12 feet tall. Sorry. Her legs are about 12 feet long. There's no obvious muscle definition. And she's got no figure. I don't want all the women in comics to look like page 3 models, but having them be consistent from previous stories, hell, from previous panels, would be really nice. Is that asking too much? For quickly, yes. Mm, Perhaps. Yeah. Well, page eight, Emma gets her costume burned and is now naked. Remember this. Why? Well, because later she gets a costume on, but then I just proved myself null and void again when I looked at the next panel. And yeah, she, gr- she grows her costume back. I didn't read it like that. I read it as goo being put all over her. You seem to be interpreting goo <laughs> over women an awful lot. Are you, are, you, are you trying to tell me something? Are you trying to express something? Well, when she points in the door and goo's coming Well... Out. Yeah. And uh, page nine. Um, I do like that there's a life ring on the wall. What? Just for... Oh, yeah, a life belt yeah. for swimming. <laughs> yes, very good. I also thought um, all the bars and the wood on the beach, Charles used to be in the army. Yes, he did, didn't he? Mm. I don't know if that was retconned, but yeah. Page ten is really very well laid out. I like how the redhead... Sure, for the sake of argument, she was called a G. Oh, yeah. uh, walking as the bricks form beneath her feet. I adored that as she walks, her hair takes the form of Phoenix. Mm. I did actually think that was really clever. Well, you may not like his art, but he's quite good sometimes. He has, he has moments, yes. On mm. uh, page 16, who's the real bad guy here? And from what we see here, baby Charles has no reason to do what he's doing. He just attacks Cassandra. Um, not only does Charles turn out to be a scumbag in this run, but he also turns into the scum of the earth in Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, where the X-Men even turn the back on him. Although we do find out later in this run that Cassandra isn't really a person and it's just a psychic presence. <laughs> My head's hurting! <laughs> Alright, uh, page 17, panel 1. Uh, here we see a different man to the one in the sperm globe. Um, the first one was bald, whereas this one has got her and his blonde um charles did have two dads but he only got the second one after he was born so it couldn't have been his the blonde guy couldn't have been his other dad couldn't have been his natural father mm. well um, i the bald guy's natural father see i kind of drifted off noteworth though didn't i yeah because 
at the point that I stopped making notes on page 10, I then thought, right, I'm just going to read the rest of this issue and see if it makes any sense to me as a whole, wow. instead of trying to read it and synopsize it at, and make notes at the same time. Yeah. I just go peek behind the curtain for a second. I normally read an issue and then I, sit, no, I synopsis it, and then I read it again whilst making notes. With this, I was trying to save time, and I was trying to read it and make notes at the same time, and it wasn't working. So I read the rest of the issue, and I got to the last page, where Morrison breaks the rules of Nuff Said Month by having a character talk, but we'll ignore that. And I'll be honest with you, my first reaction was, what the hell? Really? An entire 22-page story for that? This could have been done in three, maybe four pages at most. It's a waste of my time. And a prime example of why I don't like a lot of Grant Morrison's comics. I lost interest in doing anything more with this, with the notes. This was utter... I can't say it. I've written it in my notes, but we're family friendly. So I'm not going to say it. Well, normally I'll bleep it, but I'm not saying it's there because I would be tempted to scream it. Morrison probably thinks he's saying something really deep and meaningful in this issue. And it's true, it may be a really important part of an overall story he's telling over a couple of years. high. Odd that he's on the book, or he's just high. <laughs> you know what? This doesn't make me want to read anymore. I don't know who anybody is. I don't know what they're doing. Nothing is explained within the confines of this single issue. And more importantly, I don't care! The story's long and padded and thoroughly uninteresting and boils down to a last page. A last page that seemed to portray one of the lead characters as an in utero murderer. The first time I read an X-Men story, which I talked about above, it intrigued me. Enough to want to know more about what was going on. But the issue I read, and I point to Demon that we read earlier on, told me everything I needed to know to enjoy that story. This told me nothing! I know there's legions of Grant Morrison fans out there who are probably going to lynch me for this. They're no doubt going to try and convince me this is the pinnacle of comic book achievement and he's the greatest thing since bread came sliced. And his run on X-Men was the single best run in the history of the book. For every story of his I read that I enjoy, the stories like this that I think are just utter garbage. Whilst no dialogue issue seems like a really good idea, you need a really talented writer and artist to pull this off. And you can't introduce your characters, you have to show it. You can't tell us time has passed, you have to show it. We don't know why the character is invading Xavier's privacy. We don't know why he's in this chamber in the first place, what the point of this is, what purpose it serves in the overall narrative. Because this isn't an overall narrative, it's a chapter in an extended story that makes no sense when it's taken in isolation. This story doesn't want me, make me want to read anymore. It gives me no sense of wonder. It interests me not one jot in the characters. This utterly and completely failed in its task. I really, genuinely, lovely listeners, I really want someone to point me to an article. Or write in yourself. Write in to the show, email or Facebook, preferably email, so it'll get saved and I can read it on the show. Tell me why, why in God's green earth Morrison and Quitley are so revered. Because on this evidence, they're a boat that left me on the island. God, this was terrible. So, uh, think you didn't like it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm loath to ask what you thought of it. Well, no, um, <coughs> I, I chose this because... I wanted to know what you thought about it, so when you hadn't read it... Um, it made no sense to me! Well, yeah, but the rest of the series, I'm 
when you're reading this as with the rest of the series it is good um, I don't think it is the best X-Men run probably my favourite being Astonishing but um, it, it is really good as a whole with people killing mutants to harness them because people want to be like mutants and Magneto coming back and being like haha mass murderer why is no one taking me seriously <laughs> well see the last time you picked a Grant Morrison book was for JLA you picked JLA and I read the rest of that hardcover mm. I really enjoyed it I'm not specifically down on Grant Morrison if he writes something that I enjoy I'm perfectly happy to go mea culpa Robert Culp I enjoyed that yeah. I didn't enjoy this I don't know what's going on I didn't know who any of these people were and the art was crap okay he's, he's a isn't that great but I do think he's he is a really good artist is that not an oxymoron no, may, maybe not because of how he draws people but what he puts into panels and how he lays them out takes All-Star Superman the panel layouts on that um, but his main strength I think is his storytelling he is an artist, though, who has grown over time, as opposed to Gary Frank. <laughs> He's gone worse over time. But his work for the Sandman Endless Nights was fantastic, I showed you that, yeah. which was really good. And his work on Batman and Robin um, and All-Star Superman and Flex Mentala was some of his best. I really like the Batman and Robin stuff, though. I've read it. Um, but his X-Men work can be hit and miss, though mostly miss especially when he drew Wolverine with a god awful bid for one issue maybe he's but, just not cut out to draw superheroes maybe but he can get it sometimes but um I do think X-Men is really good though I didn't like it on a Morrison level because when you've read stuff like The Invisibles and um those are the Grant Morrison books. <laughs> the filth. The filth. Of, well, the Doom Patrol. When Morrison's allowed to be wacky and out there. I was let down on Doom Patrol. Do you not like I Doom read Patrol? it as a whole and I was just, at the end of it, I was like, oh, is, is that it? Right, okay. Well, that was really was enjoyable in hindsight it wasn't and with X-Men it was enjoyable but also... So you've got all three volumes then, yeah, haven't you? It's, it's good but I do think the last story arc lets it down. So the ending's no good? Well, no. Uh, four, four issues for a dramatic story event which then gets rewritten is so his, his ending has now been retconned anyway he retconned it himself oh ok but um there was another retcon with how oh, you just said you weren't going to read him most from not ruin anything Zorn is turns out to be Magneto right which was quite a shocker and I was quite miffed because oh, right. I liked Zorn but um and he was quite a nice guy as well but Zorn because he was such a fan favourite, Marvel retconned him without Morrison's permission so that Magneto wasn't pretending to be Zorn. Zorn's now um, long-forgotten twin brother was pretending to be Magneto, pretending to be Zorn. Because that makes so much sense. <laughs> and Morrison sat there going... Right, I'll leave you guys on your I'm supposed now. to be the one on the wacky backing. I'm, I'm going on to DC now. <laughs> See you guys later. Well, we were so divided in our opinion of See, these I really two liked issues. This issue. Michael really, really liked it, and I thought it was up Sh- Should I give you that other one-off issue and see if you like it? Yeah, I will one-off. try and read the other one-off issue. That I invited somebody onto the show who has never read an X-Men comic in their life. And I invited this person to read both these two issues so that they could share their opinion with us. So I give you my lovely wife, Angela. Applause.
let's do this properly. You've never actually been on the show properly before, have you? No. Because you don't like your voice, no. do you? We've, we've got you occasionally chiming in, normally when I've done something stupid. And, All the time. And you, you managed, Stephen Lacey managed to convince you to be part of the Fantastic Ass trailer. Well, you've never done that for me, but you do it for him. You've never asked. No, that's very true. So, I asked you to read these two X-Men issues. I didn't read that one. No, you read the pocketbook. Oh, Michael right. brought the, the reprint down. But okay. it's, the, the story is the same. Which one did you prefer? Well, I didn't prefer either of them because I don't do superhero comics. That's story. not a good answer. No. Story-wise, I preferred the one that you gave me. Heretic. <laughs> and why? Because it was a story. And you weren't put off by the verbosity, which Michael was put off by. No, I just... It was a better story. There was a story there. Right, so what did you think of the Michael one? It was an opening credit sequence. <laughs> Extended opening credit sequence. Yeah. So so it didn't explain anything. Right, okay. So the story you preferred, the one I picked. Art, which did you prefer? I was supposed to look at art. Yes, while reading a comic book, yeah. it helps if you look at That's the art and the story. Yours? Why? You're only saying this because you're married to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, if she wanted to annoy me, she, there's other ways that she can do that. I didn't like the art in the other one. So you didn't like the Frank Quitley art, you didn't like... If you were to read another X-Men comic, <laughs> which is highly unlikely, I know, which of these would you recommend to somebody else to read? I wouldn't. So you wouldn't recommend reading X-Men at all? No. You didn't like Kitty Pride. She's alright. You didn't like Wolverine? It depends if we're watching films or reading comics. Alright, so of the two of them, you, you thought mine stood alone better? Yes. Okay, fair enough. Thank you very much. Although I keep being told, well, well you really should read the other ones. The, the, the other ones, you should read the three before it and the ones I after. Did, I said you should really read the page before. <laughs> I only conned your mum into doing this because she was ill last week with a bad neck and she couldn't move, so she thought, oh, I'll read anything he gives me. <laughs> Alright, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So the, the, the completely non-biased opinion Blast is that mine was better. It wasn't better. Ah. I chose the wrong issue. No, very possibly. I did it on purpose, it's, he it's says. It's one of those things. I don't want to get this reputation of being somebody who absolutely despises Grant Morrison, because I don't. Well, I really... I don't. I've read stuff by him that I enjoy. There's a lot of things we're on different grounds, though. Yes. I, I really like Final yes, Crisis. Yes, you really like Final Crisis. I think the thing is, I'm, I'm loath to, to say anything too much about him, because I know he has this great big... If he was just a another comic writer, yeah. like, I don't know, like Peter David or Tom DeFalco or whatever, who'd written some comics that I liked and written some other comics that I didn't like, I'd be like, fine. But he's like Alan Moore. He's got this, he's got this <laughs> fan following. Well, I don't care. He's got this fan following yeah. that thinks he's, he walks on water. Right. And that everything he touches is gold. Carry on. And it quite clearly isn't. Right, thanks. You just uh, helped me in my arguments against Alan Moore. Well, see, that's I think the same thing. Uh, the thing with Alan Moore is I'm more likely to give Alan Moore a pass than Morrison simply because of the pure volume of the work. Alan Moore's not written as many comics, so percentage-wise, he's he's victorious in his amount of hits versus misses. Alan Moore will win purely on volume because he's not done as much, therefore he's got more hits than misses. Okay. For every Grant Morrison comic you give me to read that I think, oh, that was quite good, that. You give me a piece of crap like this. <laughs> and I'd say, and there's another thing as well, I'm not, I won't go anywhere near the filth, 
Because that's Morrison Unleashed. I don't like <laughs> oh, no, him no, no. when he's Morrison Normal. Why do you think I'd like his stuff when it was Morrison Unleashed? Well, you read Invisibles, which was Morrison. I read a, a lot of the Unleashed Invisibles, but mm. also he wasn't he wasn't writing superheroes. He was writing his own stuff. Yeah, um, I, I, I I don't like new the new X Men stuff as a Morrison story. It's better as an X Men story, but. Um, I, I agree with the whole. For every good one's a bad one. I'm not enjoying action comics, but I see, like I am invisible. I am enjoying action. I comics. like Final Crisis. I don't. You don't. <laughs> we both liked Batman. We did both like Maybe the Batman that we read. Yes. We both like the JLA run. Yeah. We both like Kill Your Boyfriend. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, well, you've not read all of Invisible. I've not read all of Invisible. Me neither, but I've enjoyed what I've read. I've, I've stopped I've reading only read a bit of Doom omnibus. Patrol. Yeah, well, to me, that was disappointing. See, so. But anyway. My, my thing with that is, Morrison seems like a more likeable bloke. I'm, I'm, I'm not, nothing against him as a person. No. You know, I'm not advocating taking him outside and flogging him just because <laughs> well, he writes comics the, I don't like. The, but. the agreement against Alan Moore is, um, I may have told you this, but Grant Morrison, when he first started out, um, when he was still writing 2000 AD, was approached and said, do you want to write uh, Marvel Man? And he said, yeah, all right, just uh, out of... I thought Neil Gaiman wrote Marvel Man. No, it was um, Marvel Man. It, it was Alan Moore. But because he, he wanted to get Alan Moore's permission before he started doing it, because whoever was publishing it, was it Marvel? No, I can't, was was it Epic or EC but, or but something? They, they were letting him do it, but he wanted Alan Moore's permission. He said, no. He politely said, stay away from my stuff. Which, okay, is understandable, but when... But and, Marvel Man's but, not his. No, but then when he says something like that and then goes on to write Swamp Thing... Uh, Which was another, created by somebody else. Another writer's thing. Uh, he just seems like a complete hypocrite. Hmm. Fair enough. I know Marvel Man wasn't created by Alan Moore, and Neil Gaiman wrote some issues because I had them. Yeah. Sold them for an absolute fortune. Did you? Yep. Got a fortune for them. <laughs> could have kept them. Well, if I had, you could have had them, but I didn't. So. Yeah. Uh, all right then. Well, it wasn't quite as animated tonight as it could have been because I've got a terrible cold and a cough. Yeah. Uh, even though we trounced a Grant Morrison comic. <laughs> Well, I did. Michael didn't. Uh, next time, uh, Incredible Hulk is somebody that we've not looked at much, so next week we're looking at the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Are you picking a Hulk issue? Um, if I can find one, yeah. All right, fair enough. Do you want me to get Peter Davis run down for you? Well, he's reading them, and then... Yeah, but you'll enjoy one. them. And then you go on, that one? Read that one, that's much better. Let's no, do the run. That, 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 with me. You can pick whatever you want. Okie dokie. Okay. Thank you for listening. Yes, glad you enjoyed it. I'm saying that's very presumptuous of me, isn't it? <laughs> there may not. There may be, sat- there may be people sitting up fuming now because I've just dissed Grant Morrison. Sorry, it's nothing personal. Oh, I'm just going to go upstairs and cry. I'm oh, like right. We'll have to find a Grant Morrison comic I like at some point and cover that. Uh, and we'll see you next time for some hulky, hulky goodness. Goodbye. We're about green with anger. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye bye.
Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to the chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.